Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. We've been looking at Colossians chapter 1 over the last few weeks, but so I thought for Good Friday I would stay in the book of Colossians, but just look at a different section in Colossians. So Colossians chapter 2, 13 to 15 is what we're going to be looking at this morning. But I'm going to read for us from verses 8 to 15 of Colossians chapter 2 just to give us a little bit of context. This is what Paul says. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let me pray for us. Father, as we look to your word now, we ask that by your spirit, you would enlighten our minds, cause us to hear, cause the blind to see, and cause those who are dead to be raised to new life. We trust your word and we promise, we believe in your promises that your word does not return void. And so we ask here this morning that you would accomplish your purposes as we look to your word now. Strengthen your children, deepen their love for Christ, and for those who do not know you, Lord, breathe new life into them here this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this past year has reminded us that humanity's greatest fear is death, that we will do anything in order to avoid death. We will give up the things we love most to escape its grip. The reality of death haunts us, especially in a culture that has abandoned any real framework to grasp what death is and why death is. And while our society enslaves themselves to the fear of physical death, the reality is this. There's a far more horrifying death that is rampant in our society than mere physical death. Physical decay and death, though awful, only points to this other more horrifying death, which the Bible refers to as a spiritual death. Which all of us, before we were Christians, that spiritual death defined our reality. And Paul alludes to this fact in Colossians 2, 13 to 15, 
These believers in Colossae were Gentiles, and, and Paul in verses 13 to 15 describes what happened to these Gentiles when they were converted to Jesus Christ and what God did in order for their conversion to be a reality. And it all revolves around what happened on Good Friday. These believers in Colossae were being tempted. They were being tempted to embrace philosophies and traditions of men that were devaluing the sufficiency of Christ's salvation work and the supremacy of Christ over all things. And so Paul wants to remind them that their salvation in Christ is sufficient and adequate. There's nothing else that they need to embrace in order to have assurance that Christ has saved them. And he does this by pointing them to Good Friday and the significance of Good Friday, the day in which Jesus Christ would be crucified to a cross for the sins of the world. And in verses 13 to 15, Paul begins by reminding these believers in Colossae of the horrible state that they were in before God mercifully intervened and saved them. You see, Good Friday, though it is a good day in the sense that on this day Christ redeemed us from our sin, Good Friday also reveals to us the horrible state the human race is in apart from Jesus Christ. Good Friday reminds us that we were once spiritually dead and lost in our sin. That's what Paul alludes to at the beginning of verse 13, where he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He reminds these Gentile believers about their former state before Christ saved them. And their former state isn't a pretty picture. They were dead in their sins. Though they were living, they were actually spiritually dead. But this statement here isn't only about the believers in Colossae. This is a universal statement about the human race. The Bible describes the human race outside of Jesus Christ as spiritually dead, enslaved to sin, completely lost. In Ephesians 2, 1-3, Paul uses very similar language to the language he uses here. But in Ephesians 2, he gives a little more detail, a little more description of what spiritual deadness looks like. And it's not a pretty picture. He says in Ephesians 2, 1-3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then he begins to unpack what that deadness looked like. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, that is, in the passions of our sinful desires, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." To be spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins means that you are following the ways of this world. That you are enslaved to the immoral, wicked systems of this world. But not only that, that you are also following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That is simply another term speaking to Satan. 
God's enemy. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. That's the picture Paul uses to describe our spiritual state outside of Christ. That's the picture Paul uses to describe fallen, sinful humanity. That's the picture that describes you without Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is who we were before we reaped the benefits of Good Friday. You see, the scriptures make clear that death is the result of sin. God told Adam and Eve that when they ate of the tree, they would surely die. It was sin that produced both spiritual and physical death. Paul tells us that in Romans 6.23 that the, the wages of sin is death. We're spiritually dead because of sin and we die physically because of sin. This past year has reminded us of our mortality as humans. And every year we know that there are thousands of reasons for why people die. This past year, people have died due to COVID, cancer, heart attacks, car accidents, plane crashes, starvation, obesity, war. But the reality is, all of these things are symptoms. Every death certificate has a different cause for death. Every death, one death certificate says the, the cause of death was a heart attack. Another may say it was drug abuse. But none of that is truly the cause of death. The fact of the matter is, every human's cause of death, every birth or every death certificate should say the very same thing on everyone's death certificate. Sin. Sin is the cause of death. Every human dies ultimately because of sin. If sin didn't enter the world through Adam, and if we were not born and in sin, we would not die. As Paul puts it in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. We are sinners and therefore we die regardless of all the possible reasons and explanations for our dying. And Good Friday reminds us, it reveals to us brothers and sisters, just how lost we were before God saved us through Jesus Christ. We were dead in our sins, unable to even call for help. We were without hope and without God. It's not that we were drowning, it's that we were drowned. Completely dead. Not only that, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then Good Friday reminds you that you're still currently spiritually dead. I realize that might offend you, even shock you, that I would say such a thing. But the scriptures make clear that if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then you are currently spiritually dead and on a trajectory towards eternal death. As John Calvin states, 
all wicked persons, however, however they may seem to themselves to be in the highest degree of living and flourishing, are nevertheless spiritually dead. Now you might be saying, well, I'm not dead spiritually. I, I'm a spiritual person and, and I'm living life to the fullest. But here's the thing. Spiritually dead people don't realize they're spiritually dead precisely because they're spiritually dead. For example, the mentally insane don't realize they're mentally insane because they're mentally insane. Their inability to grasp their own insanity affirms to a certain degree their insanity. And in the same way, your denial of your spiritual deadness is proof of your spiritual deadness. The fact of the matter is, it's only those who've been made spiritually alive who realize they were once dead. It's their coming to life that made them realize they were dead. There are people in this room who willingly acknowledge that they were at one point in their lives spiritually dead people lost and enslaved to their sin. And the reason they can acknowledge that is because they've been made spiritually alive by God. Which leads to my second point. Good Friday not only reminds us that we were dead in our sins, but Good Friday also reminds us that we, we've been spiritually resurrected by God. Look at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. That is, God made alive together with Christ. This is the great miracle of salvation. Conversion is not some mere decision. Conversion is when God breathes into a dead person and causes that dead person to come alive. God in his power causes spiritually dead people to live. This is what salvation is. He breathes spiritual life into your spiritual dead being and you live. They begin to walk in a resurrected spiritual life. But notice that Paul says, God made us alive together with him, with Christ. In other words, our spiritual resurrection has occurred because we've been united to Christ in his resurrection. Basically, the New Testament teaches that everything that happens to Christ, we are participants in. He died, we died. He rose, we rise. Now, what follows in verses 13 and 14 is Paul's explanation for how this can be true. He gives his explanation, his argumentation for how spiritually dead sinners can be made spiritually alive by God. And there are three things he conveys which build on each other. And really, they are three hows. Three hows that build on each other. Three ways in which God is able to cause dead people to come alive. But they build on each other. The first how is that we've gone from spiritual death to spiritual life because our sins have been forgiven. That's what Paul says. We were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, but God made us alive together with him. How? Having forgiven us all our trespasses. 
That's the connection. We are made alive. We are brought from death to life because God has forgiven us all our trespasses. But my question is, how does that connect? What's the connection between the two? How does forgiveness of sins lead to the spiritually dead coming alive? Well, the reason reason we were spiritually dead was because of sin. Which means the way to address our spiritual deadness is actually to address our sin. As N.T. Wright says, because of the close biblical link between sin and death, the logical preconditions for the resurrection life is that sin must be dealt with. God addresses our spiritual deadness by getting to the root of the problem. He deals with our sin by forgiving us and therefore spiritual death no longer has a hold on us because it's only unforgiven sin that keeps us spiritually dead. That's the first how. And that's what every human being so desperately needs. The forgiveness of sins from their creator. That's the first how. But the second how shows us the way in which God forgives us our sins. So so we know that, that we are brought from death to life because God has forgiven us our sins, but he tells us, secondly, how he's forgiven us our sins. Look at verse 14. So having forgiven us all our trespasses, verse 14, by, see that? By, this is the reason, this is how he's done it, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. God has forgiven us. And he has forgiven us by canceling something. And he says he canceled this record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. See, before God, every human being has a record of debt. A record of debt that is owed to God. This record of debt exposes us and reveals our guilt. It reveals not just that we are sinners, but the magnitude of our sins. This record of debt stands against us in such a way that before God, it condemns us. And there is literally nothing we could ever do to pay off this record of debt. In and of ourselves, we are hopeless in dealing with this record of debt. But Paul tells us here that God has forgiven us our sins by addressing this record of debt. How has he addressed it? He's canceled it. He's abolished it. He's forgiven us our trespasses by abolishing this record of debt that condemned us. And that leads to the third how. How does he forgive us? By abolishing the record of debt. But how does he abolish the record of debt? Well, look at the end of verse 14. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This, that is this record of debt, he set aside, he canceled, abolished, by nailing it to the cross of Jesus. That is... When Christ was killed on that cross, our record of debt was killed with him. He took our sin and he put it to death 
through his death. Or as Paul puts it in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ took our debt, our record of debt, as if it was his own and paid the debt with his blood. And because of this, our debt has been canceled. It's been abolished. And because of this, our sins have been forgiven. And because of this, we have gone from spiritual death to spiritual life in Christ. This is our salvation. This is what Good Friday is all about. Now I want you to see Paul's logic, his his argumentation here. The reason why any of us go from spiritual death to spiritual life depends on a historical event called Good Friday where Jesus was crucified and in his crucifixion he put our debt of sin to death. In other words, our salvation, our Spiritual resurrection depends entirely on Jesus Christ and his dying in our place for our sins. That it actually happened. That is humanity's only hope for salvation. That is what Good Friday reminds us of. Reminds us of. It reminds us that we were once spiritually dead, but it also reminds us that we've been made alive, we've experienced resurrection life because Christ has abolished our record of debt through his death and we now have the forgiveness of sins. Which means that Satan no longer has any power over the children of God. Which is my third point. Good Friday reminds us that the demonic powers that is Satan, has lost their power or his power in condemning God's children. That's what Paul alludes to in verse 15. Christ has taken this record of debt, nailed it to the cross, and now Paul says in verse 15, he disarmed the rulers, that is God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. These rulers and authorities have already been mentioned in Colossians 1, 16-17, and Paul also mentions them in Ephesians 6. And these rulers and authorities are referenced to demonic powers, evil spiritual beings that are hostile to God and towards God's children. And Paul tells us that God has done two things to them. One, he has disarmed them. And secondly, he has put them to open shame. But what does Paul mean by these two things? What does Paul mean when, when saying that God has disarmed the demonic powers? Well, it means in one sense that he's taken their weapons from them. Right? That's what it means to disarm someone. You take their weapons from them. But how has he disarmed them? How? Has he taken their weapons from them? Well, we're told he disarmed them by triumphing over them in him, that is, in Christ. So God has disarmed, took their weapons away by a victorious, conquering act that was accomplished by Christ. 
And this act, of course, was Christ's own death on the cross. But that still leaves us with the question, how has he actually done it? How has he actually conquered and disarmed them? I mean, doesn't Satan still wreak havoc in our world? He doesn't look disarmed. He looks like he still has all his evil weapons. So how can Paul say that Christ has triumphed over the demonic powers and has disarmed them? Well, I think it has to do with us as the children of God and the record of debt that has been abolished. You see, because of Christ taking our record of debt and putting it to death, destroying it, Satan no longer has anything, that is, he no longer has any weapons that he can use to condemn us before God, and therefore he's been disarmed. In other words, Christ has triumphed over Satan and disarmed Satan by taking away his weapon of condemning power over us. See, if your record of debt and your sins have been forgiven through the death of Jesus Christ, then Satan can't use that against you anymore. He can't condemn you anymore. He has no weapons to use against you as a forgiven, blood-bought child of God. He has no power to condemn you before God because if he were to condemn you before God, he would use the record of debt. But the record of debt is no more. It's gone. It's been destroyed on the cross of Christ. And so Satan can, with God's permission, do a whole lot of things to harm you. But there is one thing he cannot do. He cannot condemn you. He has no power to do that anymore. And that's why Paul writes in Romans 8, 33-39, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? That is, who, what person, what being, what thing can condemn the children of God? And of course, the answer is no one. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then Paul says this, no, none of these things. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Why is Paul convinced that there is nothing in all the universe, including the demonic powers, that cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Because there is nothing in all of creation that can condemn the children of God because the record of debt has been destroyed and their sins are forgiven forever. That's how the demonic powers have been disarmed. But we're also told that God also put them to open shame. Now there's real irony in this statement. 
Because when Jesus was on that cross, he was shamed. He was stripped naked, flogged, humiliated, spat on. And he took our shame upon him. And yet Paul's saying here that through Christ, God actually shamed the demonic powers. God humiliated the demonic powers through Christ's humiliation. Why? Because through that humiliating act, God defeated the demonic powers. As one commentator put it, the cross publicly reveals the failure of the demonic powers to thwart God's plan of salvation through Christ. See, in the Roman world, when the Romans won a battle, there would often be a triumphal procession riding on their chariots, receiving the praise of the people. And they would often drag their enemies behind them to humiliate and shame them. And Paul's saying that God has shamed the demonic powers, not through some powerful, triumphal entry, but by a naked, crucified Savior. He triumphed over the demonic powers through weakness. You see, brothers and sisters, this is what Good Friday is all about. Good Friday reminds us that we were once spiritually dead. It reminds us that God has granted us resurrection life by forgiving us and destroying our record of debt by nailing it to the cross. And it reminds us that Satan no longer has any power to condemn us because God has disarmed and shamed the demonic powers through the triumphant work of Christ on the cross. This is what Good Friday is about. This is why we worship the triune God, the God of our salvation. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, please understand that everything I have said here this morning can be true of you if only you would humble yourself, acknowledge your spiritual deadness, repent of your sins, and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. God has done everything necessary through Jesus Christ in order for you to know the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection life. Therefore, come to him and believe upon him. He is worthy of your worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day that reminds us of the incredible gift you gave us in sending your son into this world to live the life we could not live and to die the death we could not bear. We thank you, Lord, that in Christ's death, every single one of our sins was killed and put to death in him. That he bore the sin of the world in his body and he suffered the righteous judgment that we deserved. And I pray, Lord, that that truth would instill in us a longing to live for you and to be conformed into the very image of Christ's likeness. We pray this in his name. Amen.